Money FM 89.3. Best of the evening runway. The Washington Report. Money FM 89.3. Ali Dank and Timothy Go with you. Time now to take a look at key headlines out of the United States. And we'll start off with South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley committed to staying in the Pear Down Republican presidential election through Super Tuesday. Well, Miss Haley is the only high-profile candidate left in the GOP contest, other than former President Donald Trump, of course, but wouldn't say whether she'd still be in the race by the time the party's next nominating convention rolls around in July. She's refusing to quit. Does she have a chance? Let's find out more. Dr. John Donaldson, Associate Professor of Political Science, School of Social Sciences, Singapore Management University, is on the line with us. Dr. John, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. Good afternoon to y'all. Good afternoon to you, too. It's getting exciting in the Republican uh, candidacy. Uh, The likelihood of Donald Trump winning the Republican nomination for this November's presidential election. Everybody says it's going to be him. But realistically, is it still too early to call it? Nope, it's not too early at all. It's uh, it's going to be him. Uh, (laughs) Nikki Haley has uh, no chance. The only thing in the way of Donald Trump's nomination would be something unforeseen like a heart attack or, you know what I mean, some serious, serious health problems. Otherwise, you can expect him to be the nomination, the nominee. I mean, what are the likelihood, though? Some are saying that Nikki Haley is staying in just in case Trump, as you know, other than, you know, God forbid, a heart attack is convicted of any crime that, uh, you know, he's facing trial for uh, at the moment. Yeah, it's hard to explain why she's still in, uh, in the race. After coming in third in Iowa and a disappointing second in New Hampshire, which was her, basically her last chance, I think what will happen is that she'll show up in her home state of South Carolina, lose there, and then, you know, call it quits. She really has no chance at all, and she faces a major dilemma because the more she attacks Trump, which she should have done a long time ago, but she also risks her political future as well. Mm. Dr. Donaldson, I know we've discussed this before. I just wanted to re-bring it up again because I like how you mentioned nothing short of a health issue. It looks like it's going to be Donald Trump. Notice how we didn't even talk about the fact that he's got like 1,001 legal charges against him. Right. And, you know, there's nothing in the Constitution that cannot be in jail and run for the presidency at the same time. And so and the more he has these legal challenges, the more popular he gets with his own supporters. But the trick is not going to be his own supporters. The trick is going to be the moderates. And so these legal challenges not only risk his own future, but it also makes it tougher for him to win, not the Republican nomination, but the eventual presidential election, which, by the way, will start next week, you know, with Joe Biden. Okay, if you extrapolate whatever's happening on the ground within the GOP party to the the wider general election and taking into considering the moderates, now they say that people who voted for Trump during the primaries and caucuses voted for him because they love him, while the people who voted for his opponents were voting for his opponents because they hate him or they don't they, they, they don't want him to be president. How does that look for the entire general election, the presidential election when it comes? Yeah, I think that's the big the big trick is who are moderates going to to vote for? I think the economy is getting better, but many people don't feel the effect of all of that. Trump still has a really terrific ground game. And with Joe Biden also aging, there's an awful lot of question marks ahead of him. My friends, this is going to be quite an interesting matchup. 
But in terms of the moderates, it is these legal issues that are really going to get in Trump's way. Now he'll have to appeal to them and not his base, and he's going to have an awful lot of trouble doing that. All right. In other developing news today, Dr. Donaldson, three U.S. service members after an unmanned aerial drone attack on U.S. forces stationed in northeastern Jordan near the Syrian border. President Joe Biden has blamed Iran-backed groups for the attack. This is the first deadly strike against U.S. forces since the Israel-Hamas war erupted back in October. Doctor, could you give us a better understanding of what's happening right now? How do you see the U.S. retaliating with regard to this attack? This gives Joe Biden a major bind because with proxy wars, as this is, you know, it's almost impossible for, you know, you don't want the two major powers to come to blow. But Joe Biden will be under an awful lot of pressure to strike back. And the question is, can he do that in a measured way that will not risk something that looks increasingly likely, which is spreading this war beyond where it started between Netanyahu and Hamas. So the whole region in the Middle East is very volatile right now, as you pointed out, Doctor. So what? how can any of the, the whoever is going to be the next president actually plan for the region in the future? What will be the U.S. objective here? Yeah, the, the major U.S. Object, uh, objective, at least under a president like Biden, but I would include, you know, Nikki Haley, other traditional Republicans would be to keep uh, the region stable. Trump has uh, shown a proclivity to create chaos wherever he goes. Well, I think we're all hoping in terms of regional stability that cooler heads uh, prevail. But even for someone with the experience in foreign policy like Joe Biden, this is an incredibly tricky problem. And this really is something that, you know, places like Singapore and elsewhere really do need to be paying attention to, because if this war spreads, it will not it will not leave any corner of the globe unscathed. Doctor, just to build on what you've just said, I know there are a lot of comments coming out, even Republican opponents have said stuff. I I want to put that aside and and draw on how for many decades we've looked at the United States as the most powerful country in the world. And with that comes the burden of, you know, people constantly turning to them to solve these problems, problems like what we're seeing with regard to this conflict. How will Joe Biden or even the next president have to navigate that? Is that pressure still there? Or do you see the U.S. more of trying to deal with the domestic issues? Well, I think they're, they're intertwined. The better that Joe Biden deals with this issue, the better his domestic issues will, will look. In other words, he'll have an easier time with the election. But he's two dilemmas at the same time. One is how do you deal with the international environment that seems to be degrading in front of, in front of his eyes? And yeah. at the same time, he's being criticized domestically from the right who says that he's too soft on Hamas and from uh, and and pro-Israel enough, and from his own left of uh, pressure within the party to try to create and force Israel into a ceasefire, or at least compel them into some kind of a ceasefire. Those are two dilemmas that are happening at the same time. Very very difficult. But in terms of what is important for the world, is to make sure that this conflict does not spread any further. All right, Doctor, let's talk about uh, the U.S. National Security Advisor, uh, Mr. Jake Sullivan, meeting up with China's top diplomat Wang Yi in Thailand over the weekend. Are we seeing the step in the right direction between the two superpowers? 
Well, talking is certainly better than not talking. And so having these kinds of dialogues is important. Having the two sides talk to each other can, can never really be a bad thing. I'm not all that optimistic of any kind of a breakthrough, but incrementally, these kinds of talks, you know, can make a difference. And I guess it's also about keeping that narrative that they continue to maintain high-level dialogue. Is this a year that we see U.S.-China relations or talks improve, or is China just waiting out for that November election? I think I think it's I, I think it's unlikely to improve a great deal in the future. But right now, you know, the the U.S. has to deal with Ukraine and Russia, mm. has to deal with Hamas and Israel. And China is important, both in terms of uh, managing two other potential flashpoints, one in North Korea, the other one, uh, uh, the cross-straits relations with Taiwan. Let's bring it back to economic uh, activities. The U.S. economy expanded in the fourth quarter. China is still facing some challenges uh, with its economy at home. Do you think this might uh, soften Beijing's uh, uh, stance a little bit? I think it might. I think there is this sort of idea of China, you know, becoming the rising power and, you know, being able to stand up on its own. But right now, China's economy is displaying major weaknesses, and they don't seem to be short-term weaknesses. As it turns out, China decoupling or leading the world economy becomes really hard to imagine. China really does need the U.S. The main, and, and, and in the meantime, the U.S. economic strengthening does not seem to be a short-term thing. It really does seem to be a pretty robust kind of a per- performance. And so this is, in many ways, an important factor in U.S.-China relations, as China's hand seems to be declining while the U.S. Uh, seems to be uh, increasing. And how that plays out over the next several months becomes a major you know, question. Maybe the responsibility and pressure of being the number one economy in the world is just too much. Why not cooperation between the U.S. and China? Share the responsibility, doctor. Okay, in the multiverse, perhaps. I mean, I would love that. That would be great. It really would be. But right now, in terms of, especially in terms of something like Israel Hamas, unfortunately, it's only the United States that's in a position, both in terms of geopolitically and economically and in terms of their history with these kinds of conflicts, that could play any kind of a stabilizing role. China just has not had that track record yet and doesn't seem to be, all, frankly, all that interested in playing a stabilizing role, at least not in any sort of a serious way. All right, we've been speaking with Dr. John Donaldson, Associate Professor of Political Science, School of Social Sciences, Singapore Management University. Dr. Donaldson, appreciate your time today. Take care and have a great week ahead. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.